We are in a revolution. But it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Hello and welcome to Tractor Time. Tractor Time is brought to you by Barn to Door and Acres USA, the voice of eco agriculture. I'm your host, Ben Trollinger, editor of Acres USA magazine. On this episode, we welcome Beth Hoffman. For the last 20 years, Hoffman has worked as a journalist covering food and farming. Her work's been featured on NPR's Morning Edition, The Guardian, Latino USA, and The News Hour. She's also taught journalism at the university level, and now she considers herself a full time farmer. Although she's lived much of her life on the West Coast and the San Francisco area specifically, she and her husband moved to rural Iowa a few years ago with the dream of taking over his family's 530-acre farm. She tells that story in her new book, Bet the Farm, The Dollars and Cents of Growing Food in America, out now from Island Press. The book is part memoir and part exploration of the current state of the family farm. I'm thrilled to share this interview with you today, but before that, a word from our sponsor. I want to take this moment to introduce our sponsor, Barn to Door. They're doing a new segment aimed at helping farmers, and you'll hear that later in this episode. But who are they? Barn to Door powers farmers who sell direct, helping them increase sales, access customers, and save time. They help farmers meet buyers' expectations through easy ordering and an accessible brand across online channels. Farmers use software, services, and resources from Barn to Door to manage and promote their business. The bottom line is this, farms that provide convenient buying and delivery options reach more buyers. Data show farmers can double revenue when they offer online subscriptions and direct delivery. Promote your brand, manage your orders, and keep your profits with Barn to Door, providing the capabilities and support you need to build a thriving farm direct business. Learn more at barntodoor.com forward slash tractor time. Did you know that in 2019, around half of U.S. farms made less than $300? I didn't know that until I read Beth Hoffman's new book, Bet the Farm. Hoffman tells a very personal story in this book, one that's full of failure, challenges, and finally some hard-won success. But what sets the book apart is Hoffman's ability as a journalist to weave into this narrative the bigger picture story of American agriculture. The book touches on just about every impediment a farmer could face, including climate change, land excess, structural racism, debt, mental illness. But Hoffman remains hopeful that together we can create a more generous and nurturing food system. Without further ado, here's my interview with Beth Hoffman. Beth, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. You worked for many years as a journalist covering food and agriculture, and you've traveled all over the world talking to farmers. What did those experiences teach you about our food system? And also, how did they prepare you for a life on the farm? I guess first off in talking to people, you know, it's a great, it's a great uh, gift that journalists get that when you are interested in a topic and you can just go out and talk to people and ask them, you know, to answer whatever sort of question you have. For me, it also humanizes, uh, you know, in my case, farmers and learning about their lives and why they make the choices they do. Um, So I think that I came into this and one of the things that I really had learned is, is that to each farmer, they're making very logical choices and they are trying the best that they can 
to deal with the circumstances at hand. So I think that prepared me for being in a place where I was, you know, coming from a different mindset of living in California at the time we had moved from San Francisco um, and did a lot of journalism about sustainable agriculture in California primarily, but like you've mentioned in in many different places in the world. Um, So I think that that experience like allowed me to come in with a bit of an open mind and to look at what people were doing here in maybe a unique way. Well, so talk a little bit more specifically about some of the work that you did. I mean, you were traveling to India and in other places. I mean, you really had a pretty wide ranging career as a journalist and I think before you before you transitioned to farming, you were teaching it at the university level. Talk about those experiences and kind of what you were learning. I'm I'm, I'm interested in knowing more about sort of the work that you did. Um, got to travel around um, doing. I, I was very interested in ish, like looking into how people used agriculture for development or for like. I did a project once about looking at chicken farming, for example, mm-hmm. in um, Uganda with women, because uh, a lot there's a lot of projects for empowerment projects for giving women money to to spend on whatever they'd like to through farming chickens. So I was always interested in things like that that were sort of touted as solutions to bigger problems of poverty and, you know, inequities in, in agriculture. So I, I think that that, uh, and then I taught actually at the university level in media studies. So I was teaching students to do audio mainly, but I also started doing teaching classes on uh, a class that I called food media, which kind of looked at the way that the media talks about food and how we, I will, I will call myself part of that frame the discussions. So for example, you know, food as an environmental issue, food as a social justice issue, food as identity, food as entertainment, you know, those are all different kinds of ways that we perceive it and talk about it in the media. So I taught a lot about that as well. And and I, I guess it all sort of prepared me to always have a questioning eye, uh, because it feels like there's a, a, a lot of assumptions and the book talks a lot about the mythologies and things that we sort of assume about agriculture uh, that are, are not that often really, we don't really dig into them that often to see how true they actually are. So I think that those travels, yeah, they really helped me have a better understanding of the context of, of agriculture and how each individual farmer is sort of working in this much larger, much, much more complex uh, system as a whole. Yeah. Well, so I'm interested in hearing more about the transition for you and your partner into farming. You were living, as you said, in the San Francisco area, you were teaching at a university there and your partner had his own career. And yet there was this call to farm. So what pushed you into relocating to rural Iowa specifically? I mean, it wasn't this rash decision that you made. This was very deliberate, very deliberate and carefully planned. Kind of describe how that all came to be. Yeah. I mean, uh, I moved to the Bay Area to go to grad school and it turned out John, my my now husband, is uh, was my neighbor. And I think within the first five minutes that I met him, Uh, He told me about how he was just coming back from a trip to Iowa with his kids and how he loved Iowa and he was going to move here when the kids were old enough. 
And I think at the time I probably, you know, was just like Iowa, you know, I, I never, <laughs> yeah. it didn't really occur to me, the state, I never really had thought about the state, to be honest. And I, I don't think I could have told you where exactly on a map it was. And I, I had grown up in the East Coast and had lived in, um, actually in, in Utah and Salt Lake City, and then um, was living in the Bay Area. So as we sort of, you know, fell in love and the kids were growing and we got married and it, it was always on the table. It was always something that John was going to do when the kids were old enough to be on their own. And so, you know, I, I it wasn't that out of the question because as a journalist, I was studying agriculture and I, I, it was kind of felt like a gift, something that I could really put some of my thoughts into action about how all the things I had learned over the years. Of course, it wasn't, you know, like you said, I had a career, he had a career, he, he was a butcher, he's actually a trained chef and a butcher and a wine buyer at time. And so, you know, it, it just combined our food knowledge became, you know, it was clear that it was just not your usual run-of-the-mill kind of knowledge for people to get into farming. And so we started to really think about it seriously. But that, you know, then came the real the real problem, which was his dad was still farming the land or at least controlling it. He uh, had people renting it, but he was a conventional corn and soybean farmer and cattle and we didn't have much desire to do that. And so the transition process, um, as many of your listeners likely know, is is just a very difficult process. Yeah. Yeah. I could talk a lot more about that if you'd like. <laughs> well, we certainly will. What are some common misconceptions people in coastal cities, let's say, have about a place like Iowa? And, and maybe these were also misconceptions you had in the beginning. Yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of misunderstandings. I think the more concrete sort of ones, because there's just like a general aura of like, you know, especially with the politics as they are these days, it's just like you're going out there like like there is so this place where no one thinks like you. And, you know, that those are just like vague misunderstandings, because, of course, in a place like Iowa, that's had, you know, so many different political things that have gone on over the years, there's a variety of thought. So that would be one. But I think more concretely in agriculture itself, you know, there's there's a, a huge misunderstanding that farms are now corporate owned and run. Mm-hmm. That's a huge one. You hear that all the time. People are like, "Oh, well, now with corporate farms and and you know, it's something." Um, I forget the actual statistic. It's ninety six or ninety eight percent of all farms are family owned. So that's a, a big misunderstanding, and I think that's then becomes one of those terms that's thrown around a lot that nobody really. <laughs> talks about or investigates um, that, you know, the fa- the concept of a family farm being something that's small and sustainable. That's one huge misunderstanding. Well, so how, do, so how does it work? I mean, you know, we, we can kind of go through a list of misconceptions, but we right. can also maybe clear some of them up. I mean, yes. you know, people are not necessarily wrong in a broad sense in assuming that large corporations play a large role in American agriculture, particularly in the Midwest. 
maybe they just have sort of a, a skewed idea as to how it actually plays out on the ground. So, you know, yeah. a large percentage of these farms are family owned, quote unquote. But, you know, kind of what does that mean? What is the interface between these family farms and large companies that act as middlemen, act as processors, act yeah. as, you know, provider of seeds and farming equipment, et cetera? Yeah, I, th- I think that so the first the first problem with it um, is just that if we think that the family farm is something that it's not, we think it's it becomes to take on this romance of it being small, of people caring about the land and having like a stewardship angle for it. The problem with that is that then the term is co-opted by everybody, which is what is done because everybody is an actual family farm. So you can have that picture of the farm, the family, you know, holding hands in the field. And that's all it kind of takes to say that you care. Yeah. Um, but the second part of that, and I think that is part of a misunderstanding as well, is, is that farmers have just sort of been brainwashed or are very uneducated when it comes to chemicals and seeds Um, That agribusiness is just sort of like played this role where they've just sort of brainwashed everybody. That's that's Mm -hmm. a misconception. And I think that it is really important to understand that agribusiness plays an enormous role, as you're saying. But they also did so because they they saw opportunities that they took total advantage of. And what that was was that farmers were spending a ton of time and energy in fields dealing with things like weeds. And so there was a huge opportunity to create ways to not have as many weeds and to not Mm -hmm. spend as much time. So instead of making changing the system and making a system that actually paid farmers for their time, and had them be able to be in the fields taking care of problems like weeds. We just got rid of weeds in the quickest and easiest way that farmers now pay a ton for. So what I'm saying is, and the point of this ramble is, is that if we don't understand that farmers use these things, not because they're brainwashed, but because it makes farming easier and quicker for many people, then we can't find actual solutions to the problems that occur with the environment, for example. Another misconception you talk about in the book is that, you know, all these farmers are heavily subsidized. What's the reality? Well, the the reality is kind of two part. One is, is that farms that are of the size that our farm is. So our farm is 530 acres, which sounds ginormous from California standards, perhaps on a vegetable farm, but it's not gigantic um, when it comes to commodity crops like corn or soybeans. Oh, but it is above the average size. The average size farm in Iowa is like 360 acres. So what it means subsidy-wise is, is that you receive you receive enough to help pay the bills, but you don't receive enough to really be the only, only motivation to make you grow corn. So that's the misconception is, is that the subsidy setup is, is such that everybody grows what they grow because they need to get the money for it. And the money is not big enough to really sway anybody. The reality is as well is that 
even if it's not coming in the support in terms of monetary compensation, like if I, if our farm isn't getting tens of thousands of dollars, I think we got something like uh, $4,500 last year in, in our subsidy payment. Even if it's not coming in the form of monetary payments, there is a ton of support here if you're growing corn and soybeans in the form of just expert advice. And uh, you can walk in at any day, at any time to any extension office in Iowa, a USDA office, and there will be multitudes of people who can help you and whatever, whatever problem it happens to be, if it's weeds, if it's pests, if it's what do I grow this year, if it's seeds, chemical, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's all set up for that. Whereas when we walk in and said, we're interested in learning more about organics, we're interested in trees, grass, finishing beef, even there's not a lot of support. So that that's on the one side of the subsidies and the opposite on the other side of the, the farms that are huge, they are receiving huge subsidies. So that part of it is accurate. And it's also fascinating because if we look at what people believe is the profitability of farms, um, you'd have to, the, the concept is, is that the big farms are very profitable, but is that really a profit if it's coming in millions of dollars worth of subsidies? Like at what point do you then become not only profitable, quote unquote, but like self-sufficient, like you can, you can actually have a business that is not dependent on payments. And I, I don't, I have never seen anybody talk about that kind of a threshold where you are big enough to get off the government dole. That doesn't happen. Hmm. So you lease out farmland from your partner's father, it's corn and soy, but when you get there, you have other plans on what you want to do. You're looking at doing grass finished beef using rotational grazing techniques. So just a picture of regenerative agriculture. Um, I'm curious to know more about what led you in that direction. You seem to have come to farming with these very clear ideas and principles on how you wanted to approach things. Yeah, I think, you know, there was no question in our minds about the environmental aspects of of farming that we wanted to help improve. We we definitely, we saw, um, you know, John had actually been a part of, his dad had one of the first hog confinement facilities in the state back in the um, 80s, late, late 70s, actually. So it was quite early. And he he had been raised on all of this and had seen how things went in that direction. And he had seen in that hog confinement facility that his dad ended up with this really caught this heavy cough that wouldn't go away and the hogs were less healthy and Um, So he had no interest in any of that, for one, you know, he didn't want to be a part of it. And I think that just the more that we read and learn and were on people's farms, and it just became very obvious to us that we wanted our animals to be playing a part in, in improving the land and everything that we do, we want to be improving the place that we are not making anything worse. So that those principles were really part of what we wanted to do from the very beginning, as you mentioned, that 
to John's dad, you know, when he heard things like, I mean, he wouldn't have known what regenerative agriculture was because it's not a thing that, you know, you could read about in the Farm Bureau stockman or whatever that paper's called. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really where people get information is from that, from seed dealers. So so he wouldn't have known. And he's in his he was in his mid 80s by that time. But we, you know, we were very clear on it. And he, so when he heard us talk about a lot of these things, he just got very nervous about it. Like, how are you all going to make any money? And he said something to John right off the bat when we started doing all this rotational grazing. He said something like, some great Midwestern thing I probably will totally butcher, but it was like, you know, that's a lot of sugar for a penny or something like that. That was Uh, like, you know, you're doing a ton of work and how are you ever going to make a dime out of this? But then as time has progressed and he's seen in a year like this, that was very dry. We have plenty of grass. We had tons of hay and our neighbors do not. Mm -hmm. So he can see it for himself that what's going on is actually makes not only ecological sense, but business sense. You don't have to buy hay. That's a huge, that's a huge thing. You know, it's a very expensive thing to do. Well, so I'm kind of interested in the culture clash element that you talk about in the book a little bit, which is, you know, as your friends on the coast warned you, you know, Iowa, you know, how are you going to fit in there? They're not going to, you know, be of like mind with, with you. Um, was, I mean, was that the case? I mean, did, or did you find people who were of like mind and who you could connect with? Yeah, we have the amazing luck of having neighbors, of, of you know, not right next door, but neighbors in this area who are very dedicated to environmental ways of of having the land so they they are into rewilding they they take out fences they take out buildings they you know they had bison being raised here so and they and they just have bought up a lot of land in this area so it's a really it's unique even you know when people come out here and they're like wait a minute there's not much in terms of crop in this area because it's very rolling hills but in addition, there's a lot of actual prairie that's going on because of them. So, you know, they, and I just, I guess I also, like I said, as being a journalist, it's just something that I'm not obsessed with having, being around people who think just like me. I, I don't, I, it's not a thing for me. I don't know. Yeah. I just felt even in the Bay area, I, I don't like that mindset of saying, we're so liberal. I'm so liberal and open-minded. And yet I don't have an open mind about why people do things differently than I do or think things, things differently. Yeah. It, there, there's a level of frustration, of course, because there's, you know, things politically that go on or drive around and see political signs. There's a guy in town that has like you know, swear words on his, on his front yard that he thinks that's okay. And I, you know, I think that that's, uh, that's not for me, but that's not everybody. Yeah. Well, you know, in the book, you, you describe the farming life as being sort of this rude awakening kind of experience. And I'm, I'm, cu- I'm curious to know, you know, what surprised you most about life on the farm? I mean, you really, 
you know, you came into the experience with, I don't know, having done a lot of work to prepare for it. And yet, mm-hmm. you know, did, did you really, were you prepared uh, for how stressful and demanding it could be? You know, what, what was, what really stands out for you when you think back on those early days of trying to make, make a go of it? On the positive side, you know, I was very pleasantly surprised at how much being outside was just good for, for me, um, just good for my mindset and my body. And even if it's, you know, a hot, humid place in the summer, it's, it feels very freeing to just be in a, doing something with your body. Um, so that, that was surprising because I didn't know exactly how that was going to go down. And I think also it's like, um, the feeling like it was something really important. Um, I, I guess I hadn't had that you know, as a journalist and reporting on things, I, I felt that that was always important and it was a service that I was doing, but I, I hadn't, I guess that was surprising to me about how important I really thought it was to do this work on the land and restore the land and just really get things done in this amount of time. We're 53. And so it's not a lot of time left to dedicate to a, a brand new career. And, um, you know, I, I guess I was very pleasantly surprised about that as well. But I, I also wasn't prepared. And my husband will say the same about how stressful farming actually is and how it just becomes like the largest to-do list you've ever, you could ever imagine and sitting up at night and thinking about the 10,000 things that you need to get done on a farm and you want to get done. And it's just, it, it completely, it can be very debilitating because uh, I've heard it from many farmers now as I've, I've dug into this is just that level of, of overwhelm of just being, um, just being in a position where it's not only the stress of like, Oh, I want to get this accomplished, but it's, you have the stress of things like the weather and all sorts of stuff that you actually can't control at all that are a part of your everyday lives and animals. When you're dealing with animals as well, you care so much for their, their well being that, you know, when a, a cow is limping, it's a very stressful event, actually, and I wasn't prepared for that. Well, what are some examples of things that happened to you that were where you were really sort of found yourself on the edge of your your own knowledge uh, and ability to sort of address problems that you were faced with? Oh, I mean, every day, every day. There's, there's a, I mean, that's uh-huh. another thing about being a new farmer. I mean, just literally every day, you're like, I, you're this, you're outside of your knowledge base, and and luckily for us, John grew up here, so he has a base knowledge about what's a normal cow behavior. You know, th- things like that are just if you're coming into this. Uh, from from nowhere, you know, it's like, how would you know what is normal? Um, and he can have an eye of like, you know, we had a situation, for example, where um, a cow was giving birth. We This was just not that long ago. And he observed it and was like, I'm not sure if that's going quite right. 
And so we set a timer because I looked up online, you know, Google, like how long should it take for, for them to actually go be in labor? And so we set a timer. Okay. An hour, we're going to go back. And she was kind of in the same situation. Just the hooves were sticking out and we started to realize like, okay, this, this is not a good situation. We have to get her. And so it becomes a big deal with cows because you can't, especially on regenerative agriculture, they're not all standing around in a feedlot where you can just kind of walk them over to the vet or you have to bring them in sometimes really long distances. So yeah, luckily it all worked out. The vet actually was coming for something else. She drove up, we got this cow, just walked itself down into the lot and um, the the calf was dead. But, you know, it was one of these like very best circumstances of a terrible circumstance because it could have killed the cow as well if we had not recognized what was going on. But yeah, that's, that's I mean, just every day. <laughs> that's like... You, there's always something that you are kind of questioning, like, what, what do we do with this? How is, is this a weed that's invasive? Is this something that we want to help flourish in this environment? I mean, even that, even d- just that basic level. Yeah, just constant problem solving all the time. Yes, all the time. We're going to hit pause on this interview for a brief segment from our sponsor, Barn to Door. Hey, this is Sebastian from Barn to Door. For this week's Farmer Spotlight, we have Ben and Mel from Unconventional Acres in Arena, Wisconsin. We invited them onto our Direct Farm podcast and asked them what their experience has been like with Barn to Door. And here's what they had to say. We happened to stumble upon Barn to Door because the other thing that we were trying to do is we didn't have credit cards set up. We were just taking checks and cash. So we were just looking to upgrade the website and to add credit card and be a little more professional on that end and make the purchasing process a little smoother as well because it was a multiple step process. And then uh, we happened to come across Barn to Door and it was perfect. It was right time for us and it worked really well with what we were doing. And then- And I think too, we had kind of had a website before Barn to Door and we were looking at how we would incorporate a store and what sort of avenues. And Mm -hmm. I think we just, it was kind of overwhelming because neither one of us want to sit in front of a computer for a really long time. So it, it was, Kind of a no-brainer yeah, on yeah. our side to be like, hey, Barnador will set up the website, set up all the payment stuff and make it just super easy on us. We can focus on what we like to do, which is farm. So mm-hmm. that process was awesome. And I think the end result is just, it turned out just awesome. It's honestly really seamless. If you want to hear more from Ben or Mel or any of our other farmers, you can go to barntodoor.com slash resources or on the Direct Farm podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Well, so what has running a small farming operation for the last few years taught you about the food system in general? I mean, you, we were just talking about your daily life as, as a farmer and rancher, you know, but the food system in general, you know, what, what has it taught you about that? And, 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 you know, maybe you've learned things that you missed when you were working as a, as a journalist. Yeah, I think on one level, you know, you walk, I walk into a supermarket now. I mean, just every time I walk in and I look at the produce sitting there and no matter what kind, if it's Walmart, I mean, it doesn't matter what kind of place. And I I look at that like a banana. 
And I just think to myself, it's kind of a miracle. I mean, it's really like if you think about the logistics and the, you know, every part of the system that has to kind of work to get a banana into a supermarket in rural Iowa, it is quite staggeringly impressive. Uh, The price aside, you know, it's probably way too inexpensive for, for what's happening. But I I would also say on that same level, you know, the amount that farmers would would I also have learned now is just that there is a discussion about how much food should cost and should it be a whole lot more expensive? Do Americans pay way too little? And I think actually this the problem is is that the upper rankings of these of the agribusiness. Um, companies, because if you look at the data now, and there's uh, farmers make like 14.3 cents on each dollar. So if you go into the supermarket and you buy $10 worth of food, is a dollar 43 that's going to a farmer out of that whole $10. But if you look at then, you know, the 85 cents that's left over and where that's going and the person or couple of people at the very highest levels of these companies that are making extraordinary amounts of money just for that service of like helping figure out the logistics of the banana, or even if it's something that's really not that, it seems not as complicated to have a a pig in Iowa be in a supermarket in Iowa. It doesn't make any sense to me why a farmer shouldn't be basically losing out on 85 cents of each dollar so that someone else can, I don't know, have fly around in jets or something. I don't know. Yeah. One of the most sobering aspects of the book is when you open up your own ledger and show how things pencil out. And, you know, it's very clear that farmers aren't getting rich. I mean, the economics of farming are are kind of, it's kind of fascinating. Actually, I'll tell you that's that story that John's dad um, was one of the first people to have a hog confinement unit and it was the late seventies. So they got in ahead of everybody else. It was a group of people that went in together and they took out a huge loan that equals something like $3 million today. They built these facilities on their farms and they started bringing in hogs. And as John's dad tells the story, everybody around was super mad, like all of the farmers in this region were completely furious at them because they could see the writing on the wall. They could see that what this meant was, is that hogs were going to be worth nothing, that the price of them would go down as the, as the supply got larger and larger. And so what happened was, and this is how agriculture tends to work, is, is that at the beginning, those who are the, the first adopters, they tend to get you know in front of the wave and can ride it out and make some money. And that's what Leroy did. But as the 80s went on and many hog facilities went in, he and his, his um, partners luckily realized what was happening and sold. They also had a lot of problems between each other. So um, they luckily got out at the very moment when the price completely crashed. And it was the very early 90s when 
hogs were going for like $8 and they cost 75 to raise. So people were just completely losing their shirts on all of these hogs. So this is the problem and it's happened from the very earliest stages of our country. And I go through some of the examples in the book where we just get very overexcited about growing things and having the highest yield possible. And everybody's churning out as much as they possibly can and get really excited. And then every single time we have to deal with massive oversupplies and prices drop. And um, you can see if you look at like if anybody, you know, listening, just Google like the price of corn over history and you can see that it goes up and then it just plateaus out and it's often below uh, the cost of production. So on the average, people are not making much money. And one of the um, one of the data points that I, I talk about in the book is, is that In 2019, which was not a great year in terms of sales of commodities, the prices weren't great, but the the payments were. We had a special program that Trump sent a lot of money to to farmers. Um, And in that year, the median income of the country's 2 million farms, the middle median was $300. So a million farms made less than $300. And that year, if you look at the USDA, like little description of it, was the first time that had been positive, a positive number since like 1996 or something. So all of those years that were supposedly great farming years, 2010 through 2013, those were huge booms you see in those charts. That's when it's going way up. That actually didn't result in higher median incomes for farmers. And right now we're having a nice little rebound. People are making money and there's a lot of excitement. And like clockwork, all of the input costs are skyrocketing. So next year, there's already discussion about how people are questioning if they can make a living even at these higher prices for corn and soybeans. So that's the way it works. It's just that we have we have excitement. There's some kind of thing where the price goes up. Everybody's making some, a, a good price. Then everybody grows too much. The price drops. And the response is often grow more because now I got to make a little bit, any little bit I might be able to grow more, even more over overproduction and the price drops more. So that's the sad story. We'll talk about your own journey there. I mean, you know, as you talk about in the book, the economics were, were pretty frightening to you and your partner in the beginning. Did you find a path forward that, that worked for both of you? Well, I think that our, our path is, you know, stay, stay using as much old equipment as we can, just try and make it all work and put as little money into it as we can without, you know, being stupid about it, obviously, and wasting a lot of time because that's the other factor of it. So we are kind of, we're at a position where we will probably, you know, just make a little bit of income over 
the next many years and we won't be losing money, which was really one of our goals, because as I point out repeatedly in the book, we came into this with privilege. We have family wealth, you know, not gigantic wealth, but, you know, some enough that we're not worried about going hungry at the end of the day. We have access to family land. So our goal is to really not lose money and at the same time to help bring in some other people to get started at farming so that we can have the land be, be the, the 530 acres can sustain a lot more than just our cattle. Um, and we don't want to have tons of cattle to really push that. But we also know at 53 years old, we're not going to have a thousand different things going on here. We can't do that and stay sane. So part of our future plans is, is to bring in more people who want to get started without having the cost of the land to bog them down. So we would let them do their enterprise on the land with us. Um, but have their start owning their own enterprise. So they'd be little, you know, small entrepreneurial kinds of things. Like we're going to work with someone next year, it looks like on uh, poultry. So he's going to, we're going to help him get going with just old equipment here we can use. And then he'll contribute to the farm as a whole, but that will be his enterprise, the chickens. Yeah. And you've also diversified what you're doing. I mean, it's not just grass-fed beef. I mean, I think you're also doing mushrooms, for example, and a few other things. What, what about that? Yeah, we, uh, well, we have 12 goats. We're about to have a buck tomorrow who's coming to increase the numbers of our goat herd. So the goats are, the goats is kind of the ideal for us. You know, they eat invasive weeds. They take, you know, sunlight, invasive weeds and they make meat, you know, high protein, high value protein. So that that to me is like the perfect agricultural scenario. So we'll have more of them. And we also, like you mentioned, we uh, do forage things like mushrooms. The ones that you can legally sell in Iowa are morels and oysters and oysters well, both grow like crazy when it's good, good year, but oysters are the here all the time. So that's a great way to diversify as well without having, again, bigger input costs. Well, as you kind of alluded to just a few moments ago, land access is a big part of this book. And as you point out, you and your, your partner were privileged in many ways to have the ability to have this pathway into farming as a second career. And the book is this, you know, it's about shattering romantic notions that we have about farming and kind of made me think of someone like Wendell Berry, who, you know, makes everything pale in comparison to the agrarian lifestyle. And, you know, farming does have this seductive pull as this truly authentic pursuit in a world of what um, David Graeber is called bullshit jobs. Mm. And yet that particular farm lifestyle that someone like Wendell Berry describes is completely inaccessible for most Americans, even the ones who are really motivated to do it. Um, just how hard is it to break into farming, especially for those people who've been marginalized historically? Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of these uh, these little facts. So um, I think it's 96%, again, just gigantic amount, um, 96% of land is owned by white 
people in this country. So if we have this notion of the family farm as well, so this this idea of passing it down generation after generation, what that means is is that for the most part, at least, uh, the land will continue to be owned by white people like ourselves. I'm one of those people. To me, that's very problematic. I think to lots of people, that's problematic if we're trying to create a society that's more equitable, more just, and more sustainable. Because what's happening is is that in Iowa, for example, 50% of farmland is now rented out. So what's happening, the the trend is, is that the farmer dies, farmers are aging, it's almost 60 years old is the, the average age. Um, they age, they die, the family keeps the land in the family, but nobody wants to actually farm. So the people who own the land, uh, they keep it for nostalgic purposes or for, for wealth reasons, right? Because it's a great thing to hold on to. You have this little nest egg out there. Um, and you can collect rent. So it works out very well for those families. And it does not work at all for anybody who does want to get into it. So, you know, there's a lot of ideas out there about how to break this trend. Um, one of them being the idea of having land in trusts and um, there's a group here, the Sustainable Iowa Land Trust, for example. You can work with them, and we, we likely will, where you put the land into a trust where then the people who come into farm, they just own the buildings. So they would own like their own home on the land, but they would just be renting out the rest of the land for very low, low cost. Um, so that's an idea so that new farmers don't have to take on the entirety of the the capital cost of of buying land. The problem that I see with that is is that white people have amassed wealth through owning land. And so it makes it so that if you wanted to invest your time and energy in land, you, you couldn't then also be building up a nest egg or, or acquiring family wealth at the same time, which is what many people, most people maybe do want to to do with land. So I don't know that I have the solutions to all of that. There's great minds working on it who could speak much more to these problems. Um, But I think that, yes, romanticizing about it and just, just holding on to land for the sake of, of families, being able to say, oh, it's fifth generation, this is sixth generation, whatever, isn't necessarily uh, doing anybody any real good. I'm curious, you know, who are you hoping to reach with this book and what are you wanting them to take away from it? Ah, that's a good question. You know, I hope, I hope that I would like the general public to obviously be able to read it and learn a whole lot more about agriculture. Because as I started out saying, I I just feel very strongly that the kinds of problems that we're having, um, any kinds of solutions, let's say just about climate change. If we want to encourage farmers to be better stewards of the land and to use better farming practices, for example, 
we have to understand why things exist as they are today and how they got there. Because you can't come up with solutions that don't actually fit the problems. But I also hope that farmers of all kinds would read it. I, I would be very interested to, to have people who are not in the sustainable food world read it. And I hope that they feel like I represented what's going on and their mindset um, equally as well and as fairly. Because um, again, I, I feel like if we all if we all stay and preach to our own choirs, what are we really doing? <laughs> are we really, you know, where's the dialogue that we can have between each other? And, and I do have, you know, dreams that that's what my book might be able to do, though that's maybe a lofty goal, but I think it's possible. Well, you've been farming for a while now. Are you finally getting the hang of it? Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I do think, I do think so. I, and by what I would say that we are getting the hang of is figuring out the right amount of time to be spending on those outside tasks that you could spend your whole day every day doing and balancing that with the actual sitting down and running a business. So I think that those get very out of whack for many farmers, especially people who are trying to do sustainable farming or re regenerative agriculture. We can easily spend way too much of our time just on the tasks, the farming tasks, and not enough time on the business tasks. So I would say we actually are getting a hang of that slowly. <laughs> it's not, maybe not, maybe not as fast as we'd like, but we we're doing much better, doing much better at the marketing and the spreadsheets and that kind of stuff that you don't go, you don't get into farming to do that. You get into farming to be outside. Yeah. Well, so what, what is the advice that you would give to someone who's trying to start a farm business? You know, what do you think now is sort of the secret to developing, you know, a farm business that's both regenerative, but also profitable and not, something that's going to like wreck your marriage or, or ruin your life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I could give some advice. I don't know if I have actual solutions, but uh, you know, I think that you have to be kind to yourself throughout the process and realize that every mistake that you make, and there's so many of them that you make, it's just, it's a learning opportunity. And it's, it's an opportunity to really kind of see, okay, how can things be done better? Um, and just let it, let it go slowly and evolve, like start slow as well and smaller. I just, it's like with the, with the goats, we, we got 12 of them to start out because we, we, we hear, you hear horror stories of people getting a hundred goats and then they have no idea what they're doing. You know, you have to learn even just the very basics, like what kind of fence do you prefer to, to move around? Can you carry the weight of this fence when it's this, this, how, you know, however long it is, do maybe you should order the smaller fence, you know, just dumb stuff like that, where, it's you have to be kind to yourself throughout and give yourself the ability to make mistakes and just really, I wouldn't even say like, and you've got to learn, you know, what you, what you really like to do and what, 
what suits you. Um, because again, you can't just go in with a hundred things to do and different types of, you know, activities that you're going to run. And we have goats and we have cows and we're going to have chickens and we're going to have vegetables. And yes, that can wreck a marriage really easily. And I can, I can tell you many people who it's not worked out for. So I think most beginning farmers would give that advice. Do you see your book in a way as sort of a corrective to some of the PR surrounding regenerative agriculture? I mean, not to say that it's not worth promoting or marketing or getting out there as a message of hope in a broken food system, but at the same time, you know, you see these documentaries that are coming out that just make everything look really ideal and wonderful and noble and authentic. I mean, was part of the purpose of writing this book is to say, yes, it is that, but also here's a dose of reality. Yeah, I think, I think that's a fair assessment. I mean, as a journalist, I, I am a skeptic. I'm just a born skeptic. I think my kindergarten you know, report card said something about that. <laughs> like she's uh-huh. always questioning what's going on and questioning authority. So I watch those movies and I think, you know, yeah, like really is it, if it's all good all the time, why isn't everybody doing it? Right. That's just, it, it, it becomes in sustainable food. And I feel like I was as guilty as anybody in some of the articles that I wrote about just saying like, wow, this is perfect. It works great. You know, let's all hold hands and, you know, just like walk into the sunset. It's perfect. And it's, it's just nothing is that way. And I think it's a disservice to people who are getting into the career to not have any real documents that are saying, okay, wait a minute, here's uh, here's the, the things that can go wrong. Um, here's, here's how stressful it is. Uh, I think that that was one of the points that I really try to make is, is that, um, when I first went, I, I went, I started having like a lot of anxiety about it and about life and, uh, found a webinar about stress and farming. And I just felt like it was the first time anybody really had said, admitted just, this is how hard it is. And, and I, and I, I think that, yes, I believe really strongly that regenerative agriculture is wonderful and is really important and we should all do it it also needs to be said that it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy and we have to admit those things or we can't get anywhere with them because people come into it with, with these very rosy glasses on. And like you're saying, the reality is not quite that. And then what happens to beginning farmers is that they quit and they burn out because they're working themselves into the ground. And we don't want that. That's not good for the system. Well, Beth, thanks so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. There you have it. Go buy Beth's new book, Bet the Farm, at the Acres USA bookstore. Use the coupon code NOVPOD for 10% off on all titles. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tractor Time brought to you by Acres USA and Barn to Door. Subscribe to our channel on YouTube, iTunes, or anywhere podcasts are available. Also find us on AcresUSA.com, EcoFarmingDaily.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our monthly magazine. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.